Amen. All right, take your Bibles. Go to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. I am much more comfortable now because now I know what I'm doing. To trust me with announcements is, is insanity. But, oh, there, I went and said it. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. Okay. I'll go home now. Mark chapter 5. Okay, so before we jump in, let me, let me ask you. I already asked you about your favorite Thanksgiving um, Favorite part of the Thanksgiving meal, let me ask you this question. So do any of you have a Sunday, um, I don't want to say ritual because that sounds a little funny, but do you have a Sunday routine? Like a Sunday afternoon, this is what our family does on Sundays. I don't know about you, we have a very strict regimen. Dan Monto and I are on the exact same page. We get done with, with church, we go home, we actually have a big family meal together every Sunday afternoon. Um, I challenge my kids and, and quiz my kids. So what, what is it? Actually, I quiz my wife too. So what did you learn today? And we talk about that. Um, those answers are terrifying when you're the one preaching. Um, some of you Sunday school teachers, you should be worried too. <laughs> I was kidding. Um, so so that's, that's, that's part of it. And then we are done usually by 1.30, 2 o'clock um, after we get out of here and have a big meal and, and stuff. And by 1.30, 2 o'clock, football is well engaged. And so the, the typical Sunday afternoon in the Taylor household is at about 2 o'clock. Uh, Frank sits down in his very comfortable chair, turns on football, and by 2.03, I'm asleep. Um, and that's just real. And so all afternoon, we, we all take naps. There's no electronics. There's no craziness for the afternoon. Sunday afternoon is it's like quiet hours in the dorm. If you went to college in the dorm, it's like quiet hours in the Taylor household. Everybody's quiet. Everybody relaxes, sleeps, rests. It's a beautiful thing. It's God-ordained, and naps are one of the most pleasing things and acceptable in God's sight. So we do that. But then one of the other things we do, and this has become probably in the last six or seven years, is when football is kind of winding down and we are kind of waking up, there's this program on television that we love to watch as a family. It's called America's Funniest Videos. And there's a reason. I know this surprises you, but in my family, one of our core values that doesn't even have to be stated is laughter. Uh, we have a great time as a family. We will sit in there, and, and there are times watching that show, I'm in tears. And, and as you try to, you know, figure out and unpack and, and, and do surgery on a video to figure out if it's going to be funny or not, the thing I think that makes a video the funniest is, is when that video has got some type of unexpected twist or turn right? Where you think you know where it's going, and then all of a sudden it changes. So in order to illustrate that, I thought I would show you some of our funniest videos. So some unexpected twists. So just a few things. You go watch a car race. You expect them to go around, maybe an accident or two, but you don't expect this to happen. That's a, that's a bad day right there for you if you're on the track. <laughs> uh, we've had a lot of rain lately. I don't know if you've noticed that, but maybe not quite this much rain. Okay, a horse needs to get out of gated area. So a horse, what does it do, right? It gets by the fence, but maybe this way. Okay, don't expect that, but that's okay. Here is a perfect lesson of staying in your car during traffic jams. Somebody let their pet out. When it comes into focus, you realize what it is. Uh-huh, here you go. Do not unlock your door. Okay, and then you know how this one ends, right? except he doesn't have hair, so you're not sure exactly how it's going to happen, except for, oh, he knows. Okay, there you go. A little unexpected there at the end. Okay, you never know what's going to happen when you're riding your bike. Oh, so that was important. Okay, here we go. Training your entire life for this moment. Ready, set, go. <laughs> okay, 
How many of you like bowling? This would make bowling far more enjoyable, in my opinion. Okay? Then you have this. Many of you have seen this. Randy Johnson's a pitcher. There's a batter. You can barely see it, but there's a pigeon flying by the same time he throws this pitch. And it doesn't go well for the pigeon. Here it comes. Hang on a second. Sorry. There it So we'll put it in slow motion. This really happened. You can see the pigeon coming by nice and slow. There goes the ball. Here comes the pigeon. And then there's a lot of feathers. Um, You don't expect to see that when you go to a baseball game. So I think that some of the things that make videos the funniest is those unexpected twists and unexpected turns. I didn't do that simply because I wanted you all to laugh and actually like engage this morning, although it helped. Um, I did that because as we look at our story in Mark chapter 5 this morning, we're going to see the same thing. We're going to see a few moments where you think you know where the story is going, and then all of a sudden, it does the opposite. And, and I believe the, 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 the author of this gospel, Mark himself, is doing that in order to make sure we understand what the point of this story is. So we're going to look at, at Mark chapter 5. Let me, before I jump into this, I, I love the book of Mark. It's like this action-packed book. One of Mark's favorite words is immediately. So I can identify, it's like immediately, immediately, and then immediately this happened, and then everybody was amazed and overwhelmed and terrified. I mean, he uses big, big words, and I really enjoy it. So in fact, just before our passage that we get into Mark 5, the end of Mark 4, you have Jesus doing all of these teachings, and he's presenting to all these people, and the crowds are crushing in on him, and he at evening decides that he's going to cross over the water. So he gets into a boat with his disciples, and they head out. And, and you remember the story how this huge storm comes up, and it says that the waves were so big, it was about to swamp the boat. It's about to sink this thing, and the disciples are losing their minds. They are freaking out. And verse 18 Sorry, verse 38 of chapter 4, it says, Jesus was in the stern sleeping on the cushion. As I said earlier, naps are ordained by God. Jesus was taking one. But what's amazing is that that the waves are crashing in such a fashion and so violently, the disciples think they're going to die, and Jesus is at ease. He's asleep. But the disciples can't let that happen, so they wake Jesus up and they say, Teacher, don't you care? We're about to die. And, 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 and Jesus, it says, Jesus got up, he rebuked the wind and the waves, and he said, shh, be still. And as he turned around and looked at the disciples, who were terrified of this storm, probably still shaking in their boots, having just seen Jesus wake up from a nap, give them that look of, you know, I was sleeping, looking out over the wind and the waves and just simply saying, shh. And then the lake is like glass. Jesus looks at the disciples and he says to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Ouch. Right? To to hear Jesus say those words to you had to be just a stinging in your soul. Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Oh, I had to crush these disciples. So you fast forward to Mark chapter 5. Verse 1, these disciples and Jesus get to the other side of the sea, to the region of the Gerasenes. In verse 2, as soon as Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came running out of the tombs and met him. 
I cannot help but think of what in the world the disciples were thinking at that moment. They had just been rebuked for freaking out over the wind and the waves. We're going to die. We're so scared. We're going to die. And Jesus is like, seriously, where's your faith? They get out of the boat, and this fella comes running out of the cliffs. They have to be standing there like, oh, where's my faith? Where's my faith? Where's my faith? Verse 3. This man lived in the tombs. And nobody was able to restrain him anymore. Not even with a chain. Because he often had been bound with shackles and with chains. But he had torn the chains apart and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains. He was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. We have a description of this man who came running at Jesus as soon as they came to shore, and it's not a pretty picture, is it? You had this man who's living among the tombs, the, the cliffs. Many, many people would carve out areas in the limestone and the caves so that they could bury their dead there, and, and, and it wasn't strange for an outcast or someone who was um, unclean even to make those caves their home. So here is this man living in the caves among the dead people, among the tombs, and he is, and and I, I use the word literally too many times, but I think this one works. He was literally uncontrollable. Nobody could tame him. Nobody could subdue him. It's not like that rambunctious child in Sunday school. It's not like that kid who has lost their mind because they've been trapped in a house with family for the Thanksgiving week and they haven't gone out for days, and they're bouncing off the walls. It's not that level of irritation. It's this level of, of, of uncontrollableness where he is so strong and nobody can shackle him. Every time they put shackles on his wrist and chains around his ankles, he would bust out of them and explode them. Every time somebody tried to subdue him, he was so strong, so out of control, so animalistic that, that he would just force all of the restraints off and he would do whatever he wanted. Nobody could ever control him. The words that are used here are the same words. To, to seek to restrain this man was the same way you would restrain, restrain a, a prisoner or a violent mental patient. He was the very definition of hopeless. I mean, verse 5, night and day, among the tombs, on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. He's always crying out. He's always screaming or shrieking or shouting. This, this is the same word that's used back in the book of Isaiah, chapter 26, verse 17, when it says this, as a pregnant woman about to give birth writhes and cries out in her pains. I don't know if any of you are familiar with that shrieking. I am, but not because my wife did it. Upon the birth of our first child, we went in to deliver Jordan, and we're sitting in the delivery room, and, and we're talking, and it was still at that point where I could make fun of the contraction machine. Guys, you know what I'm talking about? They put those things on, and then the contraction would come, and I'd be like, oh, here comes another one. Ooh, that's a big one. She wasn't angry yet. So it was still safe for me to make fun of those things, like, oh, here comes another one. At some point, there becomes a line where it's like, mm. right? 
Well, I'm still making fun of those things. And, and from down the hallway, I hear this blood curdling. And I looked at Stephanie and she said I was pale and quivery. Probably true. And I said, please don't do that. Whatever you do, just don't do that. That pain, that writhing, that shrieking, that crying out. That's the noise the Gadarean was making. He kept on cutting himself with sharp stones, bruising himself, <clears throat> lacerating himself. Um, while not the point of the text, certainly a point in our culture today, so I would be amiss if I didn't talk about this for a second. Someone like this fella who's trying to control something in their otherwise completely out of control life, whether that out of control is an accurate understanding of their life or if it's just a felt out of control, many times, particularly today among our young people, cutting and self-harm is a reality. And you, you look at that and, and you try to figure it out and really what's happening is they're, they're, they're trying to deal with life's pain. They're, they're trying to, the, the cutting and the self-harm, that's not the actual issue. It's a coping mechanism to deal with, with feeling so incredibly out of control in life. They can't control anything so we can control this. And, and I know for many of us, we said, that doesn't make any sense. So stupid. Why would you cut yourself? Hey, um, so is your coping mechanism. Alcoholism, drug addiction, workaholism, porn addiction, people-pleasing, whatever it could be. Let's not throw the first stone because your uh, means of coping with the, your life are just as ridiculous as cutting and self-harm. The, the problem is that physically the injuries can, can lead to all kinds of problems in the future for, for this person. And it can bring a, a false sense of control in their life when in fact they're actually spiraling out of control. So let me say this. You are here. You may not even know why you do it. But if you're doing it, whether it be cutting, burning, any, any means of self-harm, then you have got to talk to somebody. You have got to talk to your parents. You've got to talk to a friend, a sibling. You've got to talk to a, a, another, a, a student. You've got to talk to a teacher. You've got to talk to a, a pastor. You've got to talk to a, to a counselor because the issue isn't if you cut yourself or not. It's why you're doing it. Talk to somebody. Now, there's no question why the Gadarean is doing it. There's, there's no wonder. You get the picture of this man here in these first few verses who's hopeless and he's absolutely miserable and he, he doesn't want this. He doesn't want to live in the tombs. He doesn't want to live among the dead, but he can't do anything else and his family can't do anything else and his friends, they can't do anything else and so they do the best they can and actually when you look at it, it looks more like they've given up on him and helped him, right? Let's look at verse 6. Jesus getting off the boat, and this man's running at him. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and he knelt down before Jesus. And he cried out with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you before God, don't torment me. Because Jesus had said to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Jesus asked the man, What is your name? 
My name is Legion, he answered him, because we are many. And then he begged him earnestly to not send them out of the region. Now a large herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside. And the demons begged him, saying, send us to the pigs so that we may enter them. So, so let, let's, let's kind of wrap our heads around everything that's happening at this point. So you have this incredibly hopeless man who's living among the tombs. Jesus docks his boat. The man comes running out of the cliffs, out of the tombs to greet Jesus, falls on his face before Jesus because it's Jesus. And the, the, those demons inside of him recognize Jesus for being who he is, the Son of God. So they fall before Jesus, and, and they begin to use this key word that I want every single one of you to see in your Bible. And our translations may differ. It may say, ask earnestly, implore. But the version that I'm using, the Christian Standard Bible, uses the word beg a number of times. And here, in the passage we just read, it uses it three times. Please, I beg you, don't torment me. It's a strange request for demons to make of Jesus, isn't it? Don't torment me. And then, then Jesus talks to him, okay, so, so who, how many of you are in there? What's your name? My name's Legion, because there's many of us. A legion at this time would have been around 6,000 soldiers, maybe 120 horses. Um, it can mean a literal number here. There's 6,000 demons in this fella. More than likely, it's just referring to a large number of demons. And let's be honest, more than one is a large number of demons. And his request, his next request, Please don't send us out of the region. He begged him earnestly. So, so not only is he begging him, but now he's doing it earnestly. That word means, and parents, you've experienced this with your children, earnestly means to hear over and over and over and over again, repeated time and time again. Can I please go outside? Can I go outside? Can I go outside now? Can I please go outside? Can I? And the worst thing you say as a parent is later, because that gives them permission to come back again. And like, Can I go outside now? Can I go now? Can I? Here the demons are like, please, would you please not send us out of the region? Would you please not leave it, send us out of the region? And then the next begged, as they look and they see this herd of pigs, and they say, send us into the pigs. Please, would you send us into the pigs? Now, this is a weird kind of map of what's happening. So they beg, the, the demons beg Jesus for three different things. Please don't torment me. Well, okay, now think about it. Just use your Bible knowledge. Demons are going to be tormented by Jesus at some point, aren't they? They're going to be cast into the lake of fire, and they're like, oh, please don't torment me. Okay, no, 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 no. We know what Jesus is going to answer that one like, right? Don't send us out of the region. Wait, now, why would Jesus allow demons to stay in the region? That doesn't make any sense. We know how Jesus is going to answer that one too, don't we? Let us go into the pigs. Why in the world would Jesus let demons infest pigs? Pork is one of the most godliest meats. Unless you read the Old Testament, then it goes crazy, but... <laughs> Why, why would Jesus do We know the answer already. We don't even need to keep reading, do we? So we know the answer. And yet Jesus says, okay. Verse 13. So Jesus gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out of the man. They entered the pigs. The herd of about 2,000 pigs rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned there. So now suddenly... You have 2,000 pigs freaking out, running off the, the, the steep cliffs into the water, and they drown. Now, please understand, this isn't like a big herd of somebody's pet. The financial implications of this are insane. 
Now, okay, if, if you're a farmer with us and you understand the pricing and the daily movements of the pricing better than I do, I, I apologize if I'm way off, but I did a lot of research on this and tried to come up with some pricing just to get us an idea of how expensive this would have been for these people. So, so as I researched it out, the average, <laughs> the average take-home weight for a pig is about 125 pounds. At $4 a pound, you could get about $500 a pig. Multiply that by 2,000 and you end up with about a million dollars of floating pork. But far more important than that, the yield of bacon that comes from each pig is about 18%. <laughs> that means 23 pounds of bacon per pig, which times 2,000 means about 46,000 pounds of bacon. 23 tons of bacon gone! We should do an invitation right now, shouldn't we? Pray. <laughs> Man, I can joke, and, and, and we can joke about it because we're on this side of it. It's not our money that's gone. A million dollars of income is gone, and it's newsworthy, which is why verse 14 happens. The men who took care of the pigs ran off, and they reported it in the town, in the countryside, and the people went to see what had happened. They came to Jesus, and what they saw was the man who had been demon-possessed sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it then described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and then told them about the pigs. So, so what happens is these herdmen run into the city and they're telling everybody along the way of everything they just saw. And, and they, they're just telling everybody along the way and then they tell the owners and as you'd expect, everybody needs to see this. So they come running back and they show up to the graveyard and they see for themselves and what they find isn't just 2,000 bobbing pigs. They find the Gadarean demoniac the man who at one time was possessed, uncontrollable, now sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind and under control. And instead of rejoicing over this one being brought back as a useful part of their society, instead of celebrating his recovery, they were terrified. And the herdsmen start walking through the whole story. I mean, bit by bit, that's what, that's what you get there in verse 16. Like, okay, this is what happened, okay? You understand what happened. Each, and each piece of the puzzle begins to, to, to kind of become clear. And you can see the, the owners of the pigs and the country, uh, the, the folks from the country who came to see this and witness this. You can see them almost looking back and forth like, okay, there's the guy who was crazy. There's our pigs that used to be alive. The guy who was crazy became not crazy, and the pigs went crazy. And Jesus is the one who did all this. And all of a sudden, we get another begged, don't we? Verse 17. Then those people began to beg Jesus leave their region. Why? Because if Jesus sticks around much longer, yeah, those people who are hopeless will receive hope. Those people who are lost will be found. Those people who are blind will regain sight. But it's going to get pretty expensive. 
So why would Jesus leave the region? He's doing meaningful ministry. So, so you know that when they beg Jesus to leave the region, he's just going to look at them right in the face and say no, right? So let's look. They, they began to beg him to leave their region. And verse 18 says, so as Jesus was getting into the boat, what? He said yes? He went to get his boat to leave the region because they begged him to go because it was too expensive for him to stick around? Then our our final beg comes up here. Verse 18, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged Jesus earnestly, that he might remain with him. He begged Jesus that he could remain with him. Uh, The Young's literal translation translates that this way. The demoniac was calling out to Jesus. It's almost like you're you're watching a movie and the boat's beginning to pull away from the dock and you see the demoniac running down to the the, the dock like, wait, I want to go with you. Let me be with you. You know what he's asking, right? See, back in chapter 3, verse 14 of the book of Mark, Jesus pulls and calls out his disciples and his apostles, and he says when he brings them to himself, he brings them to himself so that they might be with him. What the Gadarean is doing is he's running after Jesus and saying, I want to be a day in and day out with Jesus kind of disciple. I want to be with you. I want to, I want to listen to your teaching. I want to see you do the miracles. I want to learn about you. I want to gaze at you. I want to hear as you paint the picture of who God the Father is. I want to see this. I want to be a part of this. Let me be with you. I mean, Jesus is looking for disciples, right? You know what the answer is going to be, right? Well, hopefully you've been paying attention. You know what the answer is going to be now. Please let, 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 me, let me be with you. He begged him earnestly that he might re- remain with him. And then verse 19 Jesus did not let him. What? Why would Jesus say no to a disciple? He tells you why. Jesus did not let him, but instead told him this. Go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you. And how he's had mercy on you. Hmm. Go home to yours. Go home to your family. Go home to your friends. Go home to those people who have heard about you in the past, who've experienced you in the past, who have dealt with you in the past, and who have given up on you in the past. You go back to those people and tell them how God has dealt kindly with you. Tell them how God has mercied you. You go home to your friends, your family. No, you don't jump in this boat with me and escape all your family and friends. No, 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 no. You have a job. You go home to your family and your friends and you share your story. And he did. Look at verse 20. So he went out and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis, that's the the ten surrounding cities, how much Jesus had done for him. And they were all amazed. You know why they were amazed? Not because he was super eloquent, not because he had gone to seminary, not because he had a master's degree or a doctorate, because he had a story and they knew it. And as he began to explain how Jesus had mercied him, 
They were amazed. What Jesus was saying to the Gadarean is, you have a story that nobody else has. Go and tell people. You have a group of people you can reach that nobody else can. Tell them your story. Tell them. Are, are, are you doing that? Uniontown Bible Church. Person sitting in your seat in this moment at 9.58 a.m. on 25th of November, 2018. Can I, I can't, unless I start saying names, I can't get any more specific, so. Are you sharing your story? Your story is uniquely yours. Frank, I don't have any training. I don't have the gift of evangelism. I don't know how to do this. But let, me, let me answer a couple of those objections. First of all, how do you do this? Share your story. You know the, the term in um, modern Christianity is witnessing, right? Somehow, we have created this, this thing called witnessing that has to follow a certain script. And what we have done is removed it. It's not witnessing anymore. Well, okay, so, so let, me, let me paint this picture. If you are ever called to court as a witness to a crime, to an accident, to some kind of event, and you are put on the stand and you are to be a witness, hey, um, in case you're wondering, it's not your job to sit up the night before racking your brain about how creatively you can tell the story. It's not about how you can, you know, if I, if I open here, then I will draw them in, and then I'm just going to nail them at the end with that. It'll be amazing. When you witness, you just share what you saw, heard, and felt, and experienced. You do anything more than that, the, the judge gets a little angry. Somehow we've created something that wasn't meant to be created, and in so doing, We've terrified ourselves. Gadarian, he had no training. In fact, not only did he not have any degrees, he had no respect from anyone. Think about that. He wasn't around Jesus long enough to know all the ins and outs of door-to-door evangelism, but he didn't need to be because he had a story of how God mercied him. Do you? My, my story's not that impressive. What? What? Then you don't understand how you've been mercied. You don't understand how you've been mercied. Because before Jesus Christ, you were dead. You didn't have the sniffles. You, you weren't doing pretty well, you know, more good days than bad. No, 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 no. It wasn't, it wasn't even stage four cancer. It wasn't that you were in ICU. It wasn't like you were on life support. You were dead. There was no breath. There was no heartbeat. There was no measurable brainwave. There was no chance of you surviving on your own. You were done. Even if you met Jesus Christ when you were four. You were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were following after the The ruler of this world is what Ephesians 2 says. But then Ephesians 2 verse 4 is one of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture. But 
God. But God, who is rich in mercy, loved you with an overwhelming love. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take your place and to receive the wrath of God for you so that you could be reconciled and made right and at peace with him. Do you understand how you've been mercied? And tell your story. Oh, man, Frank, you don't know what you're asking. I'm not asking anything. Your objection is with what God's called you to do. The Father of Jesus Christ, we're told in the book of Corinthians that we are to be agents of reconciliation. That doesn't mean you go out and be like, let me, let me talk to you for a moment about my Amway presentation. And then you sneak Jesus into it. It means you go just like the man born blind and say, listen, dude, I got nothing. I was blind. Now I see Jesus did it. That's how you tell your story. Share your story. And there, there are countless people who, who fill this world who feel hopeless. There are countless people who the world has given up on, and there are countless people who have given up on themselves. You can't reach all of them. But you have a unique relationship with many of them that I don't have. Share your story. Take them out for coffee, ice cream, if you're not a coffee drinker. And if you're not a coffee drinker, we will pray for your soul. Um, sit down with them and say, listen, can I, can I tell you something? <laughs> it's going to sound crazy, but, but, but you need to know who I am. I came to a place in my, my life at some point where I recognized the fact that I was lost and that I was, um, I'm just messing things up left and right. And in my attempt to make God happy, I was actually driving a wedge between us. But God was so kind, he gave me the answer. Not because I'm smart. It's actually because I'm not smart. But Jesus Christ came, and he laid down his life, and took the full wrath of God where I should have. I, I, I may not be able to answer all your questions, but I can tell you this. God mercied me through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So pick one. Pick one. That one person in your family, that one person at your workplace, that one person in your school, that one person who lives in your street, the one person who rides the bus with you, the one person that you see every day at one of the fine establishments in our county, whether it be Dunkin' Donuts, Starbucks, or any of the Sheets, or any of those other fine places, Pick one. Because if you don't, who will? Share your story. Start by praying that, that God would open their heart. Start by praying that God would provide opportunity. Pray that God would open your mouth. Pray, I heard um, a preacher say this once. Pray that God would give you the same feeling. Because when you do open your mouth and you do share your story... After you're done, you're like, yes, I'm alive. This is awesome. I did it. I, I butchered it, but I did it. And you have that feeling like, oh. I pray that I get that feeling even before I open my mouth. Pray that God would fill you full. 
and that you would share your story. You know why? You are the greatest missionary to your friends and family. Who's your one? Let's pray. Father, would you open our mouths? Would you forgive us for being so focused on other things that we fail to open our mouths when you give us those opportunities? God, would you give us a name? Give us one person in our, our influences and in our relationships, Father, that we, would, that we would pursue the gospel, not because we need a notch on our belt, but because they need a savior. God, would you remind each and every one of us of what you've done for us in Christ? Father, my fear is that many of us have grown so accustomed to our religious life that we've forgotten how much mercy was poured out on us. Father, would you remind us of that mercy today? And then as a result, may we not be able to shut up. Amen. Amen.